Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast with today's guest who celebrates finding solutions, Ginger Vieira. If you're new to the show, welcome and thanks for stopping by. My name is Amber Kluwer and I enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living their best life with this disease. It's always nice to interview someone who speaks the same language. We are all over the place in this episode, but I promise you'll be entertained and possibly scratching your head at times. But before we get started, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, this episode is brought to you by Siren Socks, a company making big steps in diabetes management. Those of us living with this disease aren't always given the tools to prevent possible complications. I'm talking about nerve damage, ulcers, and even amputation, and it unfortunately happens to someone every 30 seconds. But no doom and gloom. And the very reason I'm excited to work with Siren Socks, because their product monitors the health of your feet, communicates digitally with your doctor so they can call you if they see a problem before it develops into something serious. Siren Socks don't need to be charged, are shipped directly to your home. Thank you for that. And you don't even need a smartphone. They're covered by many insurance plans, including Medicare. So be sure to reach out to your medical team about getting a prescription. Siren Socks gives us one more tool that might save a limb or even a life, and that's worth considering. Links and other information can be found in the show notes. Number two, my affiliate page features reputable brands and services that make our life with diabetes a more pleasant one. You can find all the deals at diabetesdailygrind.com. And finally, stay engaged. Love, like, share, and comment on all things social media. Sign up for the e-newsletter. Join me for the Real Life Diabetes Happy Hour. Leave an iTunes review. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click on the Amazon banner on the website before ordering. It doesn't cost you a thing and throws a little change my way. All right, let's get started. Thanks for taking time. And we connected a while ago and Ginger and I have chatted prior to this actual recording. And so I'm fascinated by her story and there's so many things about her life with diabetes. So let's start with your diagnosis story. Sure. In the seventh grade, almost everybody in my home, my family got the flu and they got better within a week. And I didn't, I have many siblings. Um, so there was a lot of people to compare to. I was like, why do I not feel better? And, but my symptoms changed from flu to things that were easy to dismiss because it was like, oh, your vision is changing because you're 13. You right. need glasses like mom. And of course you're too tired to go to school and your legs feel, feel weird. Like you're 13. Yeah. But I love going to school. So it didn't really make sense. And I had lost like 10 pounds really quickly. I was scooping water into my mouth over the bathroom sink at midnight because I was so thirsty. I had all the classic symptoms, but nobody really knew about type one diabetes in my family. And in my seventh grade science class, we were doing the health fair that year. My project was on milk and calcium, but one of my classmates projects was on diabetes and he was working on his poster and I had all the symptoms on his poster. And I went home and said to my mom, I think I have diabetes. And she's like, no, you don't. Only old people get that. Right. And few days go by and I'm homesick again because I convinced her I didn't feel good. And I just started crying when she got home from the grocery store and she took me to the doctor and the rest of it was a pretty easy diagnosis. After that, my blood sugar was like 600. I spent a few days in the hospital. Yeah. Well, and with that too, like, and one of the reasons my mom finally took me to the doctor, I mean, it was Christmassy time and my birthday and all these things was because I was a pretty thin kid anyway, but she said that she could see the bones in my hands. Mm. And I was, she was just like, what happened here? And so I say that to you is because of the age range, like not that your parents weren't noticing the things, but a 10 pound 
Losing oh, I, didn't weigh, you know, I didn't weigh myself when I was 13. Right. So it was yeah. only afterwards that we realized I'd lost 10 pounds and I was normal weight. I just looked like yeah. a normal 13 year old. So I, I do have one photo from my diagnosis day when my, my friends came to visit me in the hospital and I'm like, Whoa, you look ill, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yeah, we didn't, we didn't notice quite before that. Okay. So here's, okay. So you go, you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. How long did you spend in the hospital? like three days and I spent the first day and a half crying and feeling really sorry for myself right and then I just like suddenly started thinking about my friends and I had friends in the seventh grade who had been through some stuff we had a classmate who had had a brain tumor removed when he was like three years old and he for the rest of his life doesn't produce certain hormones and you know he's like dealing with all the consequences of that for the rest of his life and they're very visible Um, I had a friend who had passed from leukemia in the sixth grade a friend who lost her father at a very early age it's just like I started realizing oh nobody's got it easy and here's my version of not getting it easy you know which is so crazy to say I totally get where you're going with that like not that misery loves company but when you're amongst other people that have had some type of trauma or some I didn't know anybody at all like that. And so right. I, I, I mean, granted, I was like quite a bit younger too, but still I, this interview is not about me. I'm just thinking about when you say stuff like that, it's like, Oh wow. Yeah. Well, you didn't even think about that. Okay. Yeah. Age 13, age 13 is super difficult. No matter if you're, you have type one diabetes or what. So do you feel like you came back to your social group and to your friends and all was well, you managed your diabetes, you you know what I mean? Like for me, there's something about my personality type that was kind of like, all right, I'm just going to do what I got to do. It wasn't an emotional thing. My parents did. I have a kind of a manager brain in the first place. So I like keep, I'm good at keeping track of stuff and that definitely helps with type one. And my parents did an awesome job of never letting type one diabetes be like, a reason to scold me or to take something away from me. It was never a source of punishment. It was never my fault. If my blood sugar was high, it was let's, we can think about what happened, but like, I'm not a bad diabetic because my blood sugar is high. Like my body is not doing what it was designed to do. So I think that really contributed to this kind of a peace in my mind of having diabetes. There was, it was not emotional turmoil. And I really feel strongly. And I only feel stronger with age about this, that self-pity, if you get stuck in self-pity, like there are no, there's nowhere to go from there. It stops you from looking for solutions, you know? And so my version of understanding that as a seventh grader was like, Oh, nobody's life is perfect. Even my friend who I know a lot of people who aren't friends with her think she's perfect because she's beautiful, but I know her life isn't perfect, you know, and I know she has challenges too. And it's just kind of that realization is what kind of led me to avoiding that self-pity trap. I think that's so well said. That is so well said. And, you know, every once in a while we want to get on our pity bodies. And at the end of the day, what does, who does, what does that do? Nothing. I mean, it's okay to be upset. I'm not saying that there are bad days and if you want to be upset and. Yeah. It doesn't mean your emotions aren't valid. Right. Right. If you're you're so overwhelmed with self-pity that everything is just what happens to you and life's unfair, you're probably missing out on life. Like, right. Like there are days I get frustrated or mad at myself because I ate a bowl of grapes and I completely forgot to take my insulin. Like that was an hour ago, literally, but it doesn't stop me for, it doesn't 
lay heavy emotion over the, my entire day. It doesn't create anger towards diabetes because right. I just, there's no, there's no winning in that. That's a fact. Okay. So when you were diagnosed, what, what did they put you on? What type of insulins, what type of therapy? I was put on NPH and regular and within a few months. So I went to diabetes camp and came back from diabetes camp saying, I want an insulin pump. And this was 1999. So nobody, there were no teenagers at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Hospital in New Hampshire with who are using insulin pumps yet. I got to be the first one. Oh, wow. And yeah, it was kind of weird that like, you know, now that's the first thing you offer a teenager. Yeah. And Which, what, what were you putting on? Was it, what was the? Mini med, I think was the only okay. option back then. Yeah. Mini med something. I don't remember all the cute little names. It was teal. <laughs> and I used that for close to 10 years. Um, okay. So you really, okay. So you started with insulin pump therapy essentially. And yeah. right. I mean, well, when you could, uh, any of, yeah, that's fascinating to me. And what do you do now? What's your reason? Now, I just a couple months ago, I started using Afreza inhaled insulin. But before that, for previous 15 or so years, I don't, you know, I've had diabetes for 22 or 23 years. Yeah. Um, so for seven years, I was only on a pump. Then there were three years where I switched back and forth a lot because I had a bad DKA incident where that oh. led me to not trust my pump. It wasn't really the pump's fault, but it was like, this wouldn't have happened if I was on MDI. And I also had skin issues and I just didn't like all the, you choose your pros and cons, right? Oh, and I, yeah. I eventually chose injections. So I was doing Lantus and Novolog and I've tried the newer replacements for Lantus, like Traceba and 2JO, but I just have come back to Lantus. It's my tried and true oh, instead. Okay. And then I just recently started using a Frezza and it's been awesome. Except if you forget to take it after eating a bowl of grapes. But I will tell you, okay, I was 240 because I forgot to take insulin with my bowl yeah. of grapes. Frezza is so freaking fast that I'm already at 101. That's and I've come down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's I've, used, so fast. I've used a Frezza. I'm steady at 101. Yeah. And I, I go back, I mean, I use it every once in a while. I don't use it as my primary stuff, but man, and this is not a plug. They're not paying me to say this or you, I don't think, but um, this stuff is legit. I mean, I can't, I, I love the fact that I read an article this week. There are 39 new CGM companies that are about to hit the market. And I mean, and the advancements in different, different devices and things like that. Like it's fascinating to me to learn about these things. And I say that because a lot of people, I would say the majority of people living with type one diabetes if you're not in the United States, don't know about Omnipod or Afreza. Right. And yes. it's, I feel like our duty as, as a freelance writer and things like that, that we tell the people, you know, do your research, yeah. learn about all this stuff. So, I mean, I had heard about Afreza and knew a couple people a few years ago, but I didn't want to, I like, I didn't even want to really try it. And I tried it once briefly, but I was, I was kind of half-assing my trial. I'd gotten some freebies from a friend. I didn't know what I was doing and I overlapped it with Novolog and I crashed and I thought, this is terrible, right? This time I was writing articles, basic articles about Afreza for my job at Beyond Type 1. And I learned so much about it by interviewing people about Afreza that I was like, I want to try this again. And so unrelated to that, I chose to try it. I did the insurance process. I paid for my Afreza, right? And 
now I like can't imagine going back to Novolog because I just love how quickly it's out of your system, how quickly it works, yeah. but also how quickly it's out of your system as someone who likes to be active several times a day. It just like is so much less worrying about low blood sugars. I yep. have nearly no lows. Like I carry jelly beans with me still everywhere I go, but I don't have to eat them for days and days. Well, and let me say that, and I recorded a podcast, I want to say last year or the year before with Dr. Todd Hobbs, who used to be the chief medical officer for Nova Nordis. I had no idea. And I've been, you know, shooting up insulin for 38 years now. I had no idea really how it is made processed in your body to the point of the tail behind it and using a Frezza, you is like such a different ball game because it's in and out and you're not going to have a crash four hours later because of whatever. Anywho, I'm saying this to the listeners right now, do yourself a favor. I'll put this in the show notes, do your research on these things because how, just like you said, you didn't dig Traceba or Trujillo. I hate that's hard for me to say. Um, and I went off of Lantis and went to Traceba. So it's one of those things like it's experimental for all of us, right? Like you have, absolutely. And hopefully you have a GP or an endo that allows you, well, they shouldn't allow you. I don't mind you say that you tell them what you want to do and they can either Tell you right. why they don't think yeah. that's a good idea. Inform them if they are resistant and continue yeah. to inform them. I just wrote a really detailed thing about my experience using a Frezza that yeah. you could probably print and give to your doctor and be like, look, type one, who yeah. use this? Um, it's called putting inhaled insulin to the test. If you Google that, you'll find yeah. it. Yeah. And I'll put it in the show notes as well. Okay. So I want to go to. I don't like the word, I don't want to talk about complications necessarily, but with everybody in their life with this disease, we we have things that pop up and some are good, some are bad, all the other things. But so you, I'm going to lead into that here in a second, but you are very, you are very athletic and powerlifting. I remember talking to you about that. I used to compete in powerlifting and I used to teach um, power yoga. That's insane. Personal trainer. Right. Okay. Tell me about powerlifting and diabetes, especially as a female. I have to believe that hormones and other factors there can, like I, then you tell me about powerlifting and type one diabetes. So that was back in like two, when did I graduate college? So that was back in around 2007 that I started. It was during my, um, the summer before my senior year of college. I started lifting weights because I gained weight during the first couple years of college and Mm -hmm. I wanted to take better care of myself. I didn't feel very good. And I started lifting weights on my own and going to my sort of aunt-in-law's yoga classes and fell in love with yoga at the same time as really falling in love with weights. I grew up in a very boy household. So I did watch a lot of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies as a kid. And I always kind of admired and respected strength because of that. And so at a certain point on my own that summer, I'd lost 10 pounds and put on some noticeable little bit of muscle. And I thought I want to learn more than I can really teach myself here. And I hired a personal trainer who turned out to know a ton about lifting weights and building muscle. And I ended up getting really strong really quickly. And someone saw me bench pressing and said, you should compete in powerlifting because I was bench pressing my body weight at that point. And so at the time I weighed, I I know people don't carry body weights, but so the time I weighed about 140 pounds and I was doing reps with my body weight and 
once I started powerlifting, I got up another 15 pounds of some chub definitely. And obviously a lot of muscle. And I, so powerlifting is bench press, deadlift and squat. And, um, the biggest obvious challenge was managing my blood sugar around it. And again, this is 2007. The diabetes online community was kind of just starting to bubble. Weren't great resources. And I had just transitioned to, I had kind of not gone to any doctor for a couple of years during college, except for like an annual A1C with my pediatric endo. So I was trying to go to an adult endo near my college. And I said, I'm powerlifting and I'm going to compete soon. And I'd really love some help because I'm having highs and my A1C in the low sevens. And I didn't know nearly as much about exercising with diabetes as I do now. I wish I could go back, you know, Um, but he laughed at me and wouldn't help me. And then accused me of lying about whether or not I ever forget to take my Lantus insulin at night, because I did have in my glucose meter download, some mega high blood sugars in the morning. And I needed his help, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I needed some help fine tuning and learning how to balance. Also, was not eating enough for powerlifting. So at the end of the night, I would overeat because I wasn't feeding myself enough during the day. Yeah. And I also, in my early college years, was stress eating. And so I needed his help. And instead, he laughed at me. So I never went back to him and my powerlifting coach. And I kind of, I used his knowledge of exercise physiology and converted it to help it teach me how to manage my blood sugar better around intense training and then competition day. And I ended up setting like 14 drug-free powerlifting records in a few years. It was really fun. And it gave me a sense of being an athlete that I'd never had before. And yeah, it was awesome. And probably a new appreciation, not appreciation, but totally. how you're managing your diabetes, like a better understanding maybe of what your body is doing because you have to be so serious about that stuff. And you, I, yeah, so on comp, I don't know if you, you weren't wearing a CGM at the time, right? They didn't really exist at the time. Right. They were really new. They were still being studied, I think, because I was invited to participate in a trial and I was like, what is this? I don't want this in my skin. I lasted like three days. Well, the only reason I say that is because I was thinking about competitions. I mean, obviously you trained up to that point, but because of the adrenaline and the stress and things like that, like where your blood sugar would be in the day where you want to be your, you know, your finest. Yeah, It took me and a powerlifting competition takes hours because you go, you go, you get three tries each exercises. They keep increase, you increase the weight three times, but you're also waiting behind a line of people. So the tries aren't all in a row. And then there's three exercises that you're getting three tries. So it takes all day. And I, it took me several competitions to figure out that Novolog would not bust through those adrenaline highs. Instead, I needed to increase my Lantus dose and I increased it by like, I was normally taking, let's say 18 units, I think around that time. And I would up it to like 23 units on a day of competition. And I also, because I noticed also during the earlier competitions that I would just I'd start the day in range and then I'd be 250 the rest of the day and no Novolog would do anything. Yeah. And then the competition would end and I was driving home and I would just come crash. down to like, no, not crash. Oh. I just come down to the low hundreds That's after crazy. hours of trying to get there, you know? Yeah. And um, so, yeah, those adrenaline and stress hormones are big. Okay. So you still work out. You're very active. What do you, what, what are you doing these days? So I literally just published an article on Beyond Type 1 that explains how I 
love to prevent low blood sugars around exercise. And I don't think I've ever explained it better than in this article. I'll send you the link. Yeah. Um, but I, what I learned during my powerlifting days, I was in a gym surrounded by a lot of bodybuilders and bodybuilders do fasted cardio first thing in the morning. So that means they're ex- they're exercising before eating breakfast. That's my worst nightmare. I'm just saying that out loud. I couldn't, I, I keep, keep going. You know, it doesn't, but bear with me because you don't have to do it first thing in the morning. You can create the same environment later in the day. Okay. And that's what I do every single day. I do both. Um, I like to walk my dog later in the day as well. And that could easily drop me, but I also exercise first thing in the morning. Bodybuilders do it because they want to burn fat for fuel because they want to be as lean as possible for their stage yeah. performance. Right. But they don't want to burn up muscle or glucose. They want to burn body fat. And my powerlifting coach told me like, do your cardio in the morning. First thing and you blood sugar wouldn't drop. And I was like, no, you're crazy. And uh, you know, of course I'll drop. So I would eat glucose tabs at 6am while I'm on the treadmill doing my cardio. And my blood sugar would always be high because I'm eating glucose tabs because yeah. I didn't need the glucose. And so I gradually gained some trust in the process and started doing fasted cardio the way he was suggesting. And it freaking works. So today I, and I have two little kids. So on some days they're with their dad and some mornings I get to just do all this in a row, but sometimes there's in the middle bringing them to school. But regardless, ideally, of course, in my goal blood sugar range, and walk my dog for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then I do 30 minutes of cardio, whether it's jumping rope or running. And then every other day I do 15 minutes of light weights. I have developed fibromyalgia probably from powerlifting. <laughs> so that's another yeah. thing. But I don't do heavy weights anymore. And my blood sugar does not drop because I'm in a fasted state. My body is using glucose for, sorry, my body is using body fat for fuel, yeah. not glucose. And I have my long acting insulin on board, but I haven't taken a large bolus for food. So I haven't yeah. break the fast, right? Breakfast, break the fast. And because you don't have that insulin on board, the long, the, sorry, the rapid acting insulin on yeah. board, you're not burning up sugar from your bloodstream for fuel. So you can create the same thing in the afternoon. We just went for a 45 minute walk. I usually do my second walk right before lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, not always 45 minutes, usually 20 to 30. And then another in the afternoon by going before eating lunch, because the insulin, even if I was on Novolog, not a Freza, the insulin I took for breakfast is well out of my system. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a Freza, you'd only have to wait 60, maybe up to 90 minutes. With Novolog, it's a three to four hour Humalog. Pedra um, fiasp, you know, it's that three to four hour window that it stays in your bloodstream. So if I want to walk at noon, I just make sure I haven't taken Freza within an hour or Novolog within four hours. And if I want to walk at 4 p.m. or if I wanted to work out at 7 p.m. after work, which I used to do when my kids were littler and still home with me, I would just make sure my last meal was at like 3.30 so that the Novolog I took for my last meal wasn't really in my system much by seven o'clock, which is when they went to bed and I could exercise. Okay. If somebody were to be listening to this, who doesn't have diabetes, this is a great, great <laughs> caption of what, like when my friends are like, let's just go for a walk. I'm like, Oh, wait, what, what have I eaten? When did I eat? Yeah. You had a pile of jelly beans in your mouth. It's a yeah, pain. It's yeah. like, and I got to say this too, and I'm getting old. We're all getting older. Let me start that over. My exercise is different this summer. And I was just saying to another T1D friend this week, 
I feel crazy because I'm now only using like five units of insulin a day for carb counting. Oh, wow. I know. And I've even lowered my traceba. Like, I don't know what is going on in my body, but I, two things. One, I cut out gluten like three or four months ago. So I'm thinking, and I literally was in the shower this morning. And I thought maybe it's because of gluten. Like my body is processing things differently. I don't know. Gut health. I don't know. I think that reduction in inflammation is the first thing. I have celiac. Gluten causes a lot of inflammation in a lot of people. So if you just removed it, you just hugely reduced your inflammation levels. Internally. Yeah. In ways that you and I are not aware of and can't measure. Okay. So that's another thing. Okay. I'm so glad that this came up and I forgot that you have celiac. So this is very common for people with type one, correct? Or just an autoimmune. Is that how, I mean, is that how... I mean, autoimmune in general can come in pairs and triples, right? But celiac and type one are like really close pals, right? (laughs) And hypothyroid, those three. It's odd. Okay. So is that the only, I'm going to say complication or related diabetes thing? I I mean, technically I have type one diabetes, celiac, fibromyalgia, and I think I have POTS. They think I might have POTS when I stand up quickly my vision goes white and I have to just like do that for a second. I had a lot of symptoms of hypothyroid, but my blood work was kind of weird, but I started a low dose of Synthroid and it made the symptoms go away. So I don't have autoimmune hypothyroid, but I I don't want anybody to have anything, but like to have to manage how all of these things are intertwined. And I'm just curious. So I'm sure you see a specialist for X and a specialist for this. No way. I like yeah. to see as few specialists as I can, actually. <laughs> they're paying. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, it's totally expensive. And I tried to tell my friends, they're like, how do you have medical debt like this? I'm like, I, I've seen a cardiologist and you know, a gut specialist, an endocrinologist. I mean, there's always so many more specialists. I don't go to an endocrinologist anymore. I go to primary care for that. And I'm fortunately friends with a lot of brilliant CDEs. So I have a question, but I love the problem solving diabetes. So I don't feel like I have a super need for an endo. I went to a rheumatologist to help me figure out my fibromyalgia symptoms. Yeah, She helped me figure it out. We came up with a plan and a medication and a way to not trigger flare-ups that I then studied for several years after that works great for me. And I've been able to rebuild my body's tolerance for exercise. At a certain point, I could only walk my dog for a couple of years, like seven years ago, eight years ago, because my muscle spasms and my exhaustion just came out of nowhere at the end of competing for powerlifting. And I've rebuilt my tolerance for exercise, not to the point of powerlifting. I can't do certain weird, I can do nine chin-ups, but I can't do a set of push-ups because it's so painful. So weird things like that, that I've just figured out. And instead of right feeling sorry for yourself and being like, I can't exercise. I just kept looking for what I could do. And it turns out there's a lot I could still do. I just had to approach it really gently and thoughtfully and build bit by bit by bit. And I think that's a great message. I mean, absolutely. Find something that your body is capable of doing. And it, yeah, and we have to be our own advocates. Uh, in, in all those worlds. Okay. So you have two kids, right? Yes. And how old are they? They are four and a half and six and a half. And you have written a book and I, you've written a number of books. It's like kind of ridiculous. I don't know what I've been doing with my life. You've been 
but one of the things that to be about pregnancy and diabetes. So for obvious reasons why you wrote it, but do you feel like there were resources available when you became pregnant? No, that's why we wrote it. So I wrote it with one of my favorite CDs on the planet, Jennifer Smith. She works for Gary Shiner at Integrated Diabetes and she also has type one and she has two children. So she was the medical brain and I love to write. So we wrote the first ever guide to type one diabetes pregnancy that exists. And there's really like the first half of the book is how to manage diabetes before you even get pregnant so that everybody's starting on the same foot. And then the second half is month to month of what to expect. And I have a diary in there. That's very, I read it now and I'm like, Oh my gosh. Cause I'm just like, it's very <laughs> just real life and me rambling about what I'm struggling with that day or what happened to my blood sugar when I ate X and how I fixed it next time. And, you know, Okay. Let me say, because one of my past guests, I don't know if you can speak to this, Bridget, I think her last name is McNulty. Anywho, she talks about her pregnancies with type one and more so that when she was nursing, she would have to keep candy in the cushion seat, like in between cushions, because she didn't want to disrupt the baby, you know, disrupt the baby. But sleep in your trap. That was a huge source of anxiety for me, actually. Breastfeeding was very anxiety ridden for me because they fall asleep and you're trapped there. And yes, you're supposed to be able to enjoy the time with the sleeping newborn. Yeah. But like my blood sugar kit would be over there. And, you know, like it was, that was stressful. And breastfeeding, my memory of managing my blood sugars during breastfeeding was I felt like I didn't know how to manage diabetes anymore. And then I remember when I stopped breastfeeding, it was like, oh, I do know how to do this. Like things are actually being normal, (laughs) not normal, like normal, you know, but like all the things I know about blood sugar management are actually working now, you know, and breastfeeding is really hard with type one diabetes. Breastfeeding is hard to begin with people. um, Yeah. I mean, some people find it very easy, but I found it very stressful and yeah. That's, uh, and I produced a lot of milk. Like the, anybody that reads, I get questions all the time of did diabetes make you unable to produce milk? Like, no, like remember when you're reading all those terrible statistics yeah. that they're based on like generations ago that didn't have the insulin and the CGMs and the pumps that we have. And don't let that scare you out of it. Just, you know, it's not easy. It's, I did it twice. Both had some major challenges. Yeah. I almost bled to death after my second child was born. And, but it, none of these challenges were technically related to, you know, I mean, yes, managing your blood sugar during pregnancy is very yeah. challenging. But none of the things that led me to the hospital were technically related to my diabetes. So, yeah, so many things on that. Okay. Do you have a fear, any capacity of your children may have type one? You know what I do to manage that fear? I get their autoantibodies tested through TrialNet and through JDRF's T1 Detect. And I have tested both kids twice now. I tested them each when they were three through trial net. And then I tested them again more recently because JDRF slash T1 detect came out and they send you these kits that you can do at home. And it's so easy. I mean, convincing the kid to let you prick their finger isn't, but they get through it. If you, everybody stay calm and be firm and explain why this is important. And so nobody has any autoantibodies yet. And they have found in their research that most people who develop type one, even if it's not till age 13 or 18 or 23, have the presence of two or more autoantibodies related to type one diabetes before the age of five. Oh, wow. I haven't read that. That's, that's, wow. 
Okay. Do your kids ask any questions about your life with diabetes or do they say anything? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, a box of a Fresa was at the door the other day and when we got home from school and I was picking them up, you know, and they're like, Ooh, what's that? And I'm like, that's mommy's medicine. And they're like, Oh, you take a lot of medicine. I'm like, yes, I do. That's how we keep me alive. And they say it takes a lot of medicine to keep you alive. And that's true, but I don't hide anything from them. I explain it to them. And one of my daughters had to have major surgery last year and on her oh. kidney and her bladder. And she, you know, I just tried to lead by example of saying I get scared too, or it hurts. And I just try to be brave. And she was freaking courageous. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's had diabetes for a long period of time, especially when you're diagnosed as a kid, when people would say, I can't, I could never do that. And I was like, um, you don't have a choice really. I hate Uh, that line. Yeah. I hate that. And I mean, and I'm hoping that through everything, our advocacy and everything we're doing, people will learn how to better say those things. Like you're really brave or, you know what I mean? Like recognizing the fact that this is a a difficult thing. I can't imagine doing it, but good for you that you can. (laughs) Okay. Let me ask you, because we've talked about this in in the past a little bit about there have been gaps in, in my life where I haven't had medical insurance and especially being self-employed and things like that. And I only bring that portion up is because I ask most guests, do you feel like you got proper education upon your diagnosis, but also through every couple of years, because we both know that devices, insulin therapy and everything else are drastically changing and advancing. And again, going into what we were talking about earlier is we have to know what's going on in order to bring that sometimes to the conversation with our medical team. So do you still go to a CD? I mean, do you, like, I don't, you know what I'm asking here? Like, are you do constantly researching to figure out what's new? I don't go to a CDE anymore, but I'm always learning. I mean, I have to study diabetes of everything for my work, right? I've been writing about it for 15 years. I love helping other people learn how to simplify it. And I do that through learning how to solve problems in my own life, right? right? So I feel like I'm never not learning about managing my blood sugar better, new approaches. Okay, here's the, this is not a fair question necessarily, but I'm thinking about this. Like if you were to give a percentage to the average person living with type 1 diabetes, I mean, we are in the same boat because we're constantly reading and doing stuff or writing about it. If I wasn't in the position that I'm in, I probably would still be the person that I was 10 years ago, which was my doctor told me to do this. That's exactly what I'm going to do. And I'm going to take what they asked me to. So I think that probably 95% of the diabetes community, either type one or type two, that's exactly where they're at. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I would, I guess I would use my powerlifting experience as the example of I like solving problems. I don't like to open a problem or be stuck in a problem. I'm going to find solutions and I'm going to find solutions, whether it applies to the marriage I wanted to get out of or my health. Like it really, to me, that's just my mindset, right? My mom always says, I never have to worry about you. So I never tell her about something I'm struggling with and trying to solve until afterwards because she worries. And I know I'll figure it out. And then I can tell her the result after, right? So it's like, hey, mom, so-and-so and and I separated. And guess what? I'm moving here and he's doing this and the kids are doing great. And, you know, I apply that kind of to everything. I just, 
there's a problem. I'm going to figure out a solution. And in powerlifting, I didn't have the diabetes community. I was a college student. I wasn't a writer, right? I would certainly didn't work in diabetes. And bit by bit of trying to find solutions to the blood sugar problems I was having as the, in that intense training. Yeah. Thing. Well, and I will say too, I touched on one of the many books that you've written. So you have, what's the latest one? Is it When I Go Low? When I Go Low is for kids with type one. Yeah. Kids with type one. We've got your diabetes science experience, experience or experiment, excuse me. Experiment. I wrote that in college. It's got a lot of typos, but it's got a message <laughs> and a lot of templates that you can use to study your blood sugar around exercise and figure out what works for you. Okay. Emotional eating and diabetes. I wrote that after, so for a little while, I was also doing diabetes coaching because I help, I love helping people yeah. solve their problems. And I was finding that the emotional eating I was doing in my early college years, I was seeing it in almost every coaching client I had. And it really stemmed from all the rules that were told about food oh, yeah. and how bad all this food is for us and only eat this and the way those things came out in our behaviors. And so I wrote that really simple 30 page book to try to help you in the simplest way, detangle all those rules and thoughts and start fresh and create your own opinions and philosophies and personal beliefs about what you want to eat. You know, I got to say, because I just had a conversation the other day with a girlfriend of mine, I was out for a long walk and it was, I was just processing things. And I was talking about my relationship with food and I never thought it was unhealthy. I still don't think it's unhealthy necessarily, but how I look at food and I don't know how to word that, making sure that there's a healthy option there because I have a lot of dietary restrictions or choices that I've made. And so just having not a fear walking into a, a first anxiety. thing, yeah. anxiety, I mean, it's like crazy shit. And when yeah. I stay at a friend's house, I usually bring my own little cooler of just stuff and just, anywho, do you feel that way at all? Like when you oh, see yeah. food? Yeah hyper controlling about my food. Like not, not to like, I don't count calories that kind of controlling. I mean that I, when I'm going somewhere else, I'm like, Oh, I don't want to eat other people's food. I don't know what's in it. it. Yes. Um, and I'm going to be going to Arizona next week. And I have to remind myself, like every time I think about it, like there's always a healthy option at a restaurant. You, that you can yes. find. There's always ways to tweak the menu and make it work for you. And I'm very, you know, I have my foods that I love. And yeah, I think it's extremely common in type one, because when you put a new plate of food in front of us that we're not familiar with, we are trying to guess the insulin dose. And it's not just based on a frigging measurement with a <laughs> cup of the carbs and that's anxiety, right? Absolutely. So yeah. Okay. And then that, that was not planned, I swear. So the other book that I want to mention, the, the, the last one is dealing with diabetes burnout. Yeah. That I'm very fond of that book. That is really about first, like giving yourself permission to be exhausted by the work it takes to, I mean, yes, I feel as though I am thriving with type one diabetes, but I put a lot of energy into it every day. I I joke that I could have built a rocket ship by now with the amount of energy I put into type one. Like I could have colonized Mars with that energy, right? I can't do math that well, so probably not. But yeah, to acknowledge how much energy and how much emotional effort and stress, even stress that no one else can see goes into trying to stay alive each day and giving yourself credit for that and then working through it instead of trying to get rid of your burnout. Yeah. Like let yourself burnt out. Yeah. Acknowledge it. 
give it a hug and work through it. And that's what that book is about. I love that. Well, I currently do not own any of these. I will not be purchasing the pregnancy and diabetes because I will not be having any children, but, (laughs) but I definitely am going to look into them and in the show notes ways to purchase them. And so one other question that I'm asking guests, especially through the pandemic situation is, do you have access to healthy food options within it? I'd say a five mile radius or within a walkable distance, but that's not a fair question because your walkable distance. You mean a grocery store? Say again. Grocery store? Yeah. Yes. And it's affordable. Yes. The walkable one, I'd say they jack up their prices a little bit because it's a little market type thing. Sure. But it's about an eight minute drive to the grocery store or less. Okay. Yeah. And the only reason I bring this up, as you know, as a writer, is the food deserts and access to things and what people have to do if they really want to go to get that type of food instead of just going to. Dollar Tree or the dollar store or things like that, that just have simple options yeah. or the gas station. I mean, right. Literally. So, yeah. yeah, no, I am fortunate to be able to have a car and to have the time to get there. And yeah. Yeah. Well, Ginger, thank you so much for taking time for this interview. Is there anything else you want to say to the listeners? And you've got so many articles coming out right now. It's unreal. And they can be found at beyond type. Well, you've written for everybody. I mean, it's incredible. I, I write only now for Beyond Type 1, but you yeah. can find me just about anywhere. And I guess the, just the main thing I'd want to leave you with is look for solutions. Consider every blood sugar just the result of an experiment that either went well or needs to be done again. And keep looking for solutions. Keep. I love that. Especially on the hard days when you don't feel like you have anything left in you. There's <laughs> Yeah. And I think one of the things too, and you mentioned earlier about the diabetes online community and how it had just started to blossom in the, in the two thousands, there are so many resources now available. So if you're having a moment of being upset or, you know, there's so many groups. So, so, many, so many, yeah. Reach just out. Type in, just type in hashtag T1D and Twitter and yeah. then find the people there. Just click follow. They'll probably yeah. befriend you, you know, do that on Instagram, do it everywhere. Yeah. Find your people. Find your people. All right. Well, Ginger, have a great rest of the day. And I look forward to reading all of the new articles. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. I had a great time chatting with Ginger, as you can tell by this episode. She totally speaks my unapologetic and very real language. I look forward to checking out the lofty list of books she's written and so should you. Links to those books will be in the show notes. But before I wrap up, I have a few quick reminders. Number one, this episode was brought to you by Siren Socks, a company making big steps in diabetes management by giving us one more tool that might save a limb or even a life, and that's worth considering. Be sure to check out the show notes to learn more. Number two, my affiliate page would love to feature your brand. (laughs) So hit us up at Penelope at DiabetesDailyGrind.com for details. Number three, I know you're listening. Thank you so much. (laughs) So be kind and throw a little change my way. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. And finally, I'm here for my diapeeps and the medical community. So feel free to contact me on any social media platform or directly at amber at DiabetesDailyGrind.com. Your continued support and love are the reason I keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone. 